1: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today, we're getting to Act 5 and finishing up Julius Caesar, one of Shakespeare's most well-known plays, and it has been a really interesting study, not just in literature, but also in history.
0: Well, that's true for me, and I have to be honest. I never studied anything about ancient Rome in school, and if it weren't for Shakespeare, I may not know much about it now, except what I get from movies or Maybe a Halloween party.
1: A Halloween party?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the togas. (laughs) Okay,
1: that explains it all. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm sure that's probably true for most people. And uh, hopefully we've helped clarify something about the history of the Roman Empire. That's an immensely dense topic that we are really only just touching on. Uh, It's difficult to overestimate the significance of this era or, or even this man on Western culture, all the way from the making of our calendar uh, to the Roman impact on architecture and art and government. I mean, it's really immeasurable. So, are we ready to recap what has happened so far in this play?
0: Let's do it. Act 1, we open with festivities. Rome is excited. Caesar has marched on Rome. It's also the Lupercal, a Roman holiday. has a race. Anthony is out in front of a crowd, and he's trying to crown Caesar king of Rome.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And yes, but while he's doing this, Cassius approaches Brutus, another very close confidant to Caesar, and asks him if he is okay with what's going on. He goes on to say that Brutus is just as good as Caesar, and he doesn't see why Caesar should get to be king.
0: And we're going to end Act 1 with the heavens in an uproar. That means storms it appears that all the gods are also in chaos and of course it's because of the excitement that caesar has brought into town but nobody can agree on what it means are the gods happy or are they sad is his takeover of rome a good thing or is it a bad thing the date is february the 15th Hmm.
1: in act two it's a month later uh, brutus decides he will take a leadership role in murdering caesar the conspirators unite at his house in the middle of the night, and they plot to all stab him the next morning, which would be March fifteenth. They decide to kill Caesar but spare Antony because Antony is but a limb of Caesar, and what can the limb do if the head is cut off?
0: In Act three, Caesar marches to the Senate building. Artemidorus, their rhetoric teacher, has a letter to expose the conspiracy. But Caesar never opens it. The soothsayer tries to warn him with the famous the Ides of March line, but to no avail. They'll reach the Senate. The conspirators gather around Caesar and stab him to death. Anthony at first pretends to befriend them and he asks to speak at Caesar's funeral. Brutus says yes, but only if he agrees not to say anything bad about the conspirators. Anthony agrees to that, but through his speech and a very clever use of irony, turns Rome not only against the conspirators, but into total chaos. The act ends with rioting in the streets and the murder of a poor innocent bystander named Senna, the poet.
1: Hmm. Well, in Act 4, the war preparations begin. Antony has recruited Octavius and Lepidus to form the second triumvirate, or three-man rule. Uh, They're fundraising through the Roman tradition of proscription, which is basically murdering people for their stuff, or because they disagree with you politically. But after you kill them, then you take their stuff.
0: (laughs) Well, Brutus and Cassius are also fundraising, if you want to call it that, but they have different techniques. Cassius uses the plunder the village approach as well as take bribes and rich people for political positions approach. Brutus refuses to lower himself to these base strategies.
1: Well, he is a man of honor.
0: <laughs> yes. But the problem is he doesn't have a better plan, or he doesn't even have an honest plan to gain money. He's broke, and he's mad at Cassius for not sharing his money. When we left off last week, Brutus and Cassius had just finished an argument about that very thing, and it almost comes to blows. But in the end, they've agreed to remain allies. What else are they going to do? They've also agreed to march towards Philippi, where they will confront Antony and Octavius for our final battle. I think we left off at the tail end of their discussion, For Cassius has brought up some bad news that they've received from Rome. Portia, Brutus' wife, has killed herself. She has, according to the play, swallowed fire. He's complimenting Brutus on his ability to remain so cool and collected, something Brutus is going to attribute to his own belief and practice of Stoicism, which we mentioned and we said we'd get to, but we never did. So, Gary, let's begin our discussion today. What is Stoicism?
1: Well, it's very interesting. Um, It's a fairly developed Greek philosophy, but the short version is that they didn't want to feel anything on an emotional level um, or if they did feel it, they would try to push back those feelings and not show them or even feel them if they could avoid it. The idea is to attempt to live beyond not just pain but also pleasure in essence making them equal in how they affect you or not either let them affect you at all if you could help it. You're supposed to train yourself to treat everything without emotion, good, bad happy, sad, all the same. You're supposed to have no desires because if you have no desires, you would, by necessity, have no feelings. The idea being that emotionalism is bad and leads to bad judgment. So you should develop self-control uh, and fortitude, and this would make you uh, able to ba- be a clear thinker and a better reasoner and more logical. Uh, you could be a better leader theoretically. So, in this case, Brutus's wife has just died and he doesn't cry. He doesn't even act like it matters. Um, it doesn't affect him, uh, so he can pursue the battle with the same enthusiasm if she were alive. Her death would have no bearing on his judgments, and uh, Cassius compliments him for that and basically says, I don't know how you do it. I couldn't do that. Uh, This philosophy is still around today, although you know, not really practiced or even valued in the same way, particularly in our culture where we love emotionalism now. For obvious reasons, it's not a super popular way to live one's entire life like that, Um, but we do often observe that some people are more stoic. Than others, and some people try to be more stoic in order to be better uh, decision makers, and so it's not all that uncommon. but anyway, I think it is such a reoccurring motif in his play because it was so valued by the Romans themselves at the time of the Roman Empire, and this is what Shakespeare is highlighting: uh, The heroes of the Roman Republic were considered heroes because and based on qualities that came from stoicism. To some degree, they believed that they were able to construct their society because men, through this Stoic philosophy, were able to put aside their personal wants and wishes for the greater good. Uh, in other words, their heroes, uh, at least they believe their heroes, valued upholding the Republic more than their marriages or their friendships or sex or personal financial gains. They believed that it was their Stoicism that enabled them to not fall into the trappings that most people of power easily succumb to, hence the nobility. In other words, if you could actually do that, which may, many, not many people who have the opportunity of power can, then you are something special or a hero. Men like Marcus Cato, who's alluded to in his play a lot, were men who lived their lives as examples of these ideas. Brutus wants to be in that group and thinks he is in that group, Whether that is or isn't true is really up to the readers of history in this case or in this play to decide.
0: Well, before we finally close out the famous tent scene, uh, some other generals are going to come in. They're going to deliver the latest updated numbers on the prescriptions that are going on in Rome. They're going to bring up the idea that Portia has died again. And then they're going to go over the battle plan. And once again, as if these conspirators have learned nothing, we have a repeat of what went on at Brutus's house. Cassius is going to have a good plan. Brutus overrides it with a different plan. And they're all going to go to the side with what Brutus has said because he's the better stoic, I guess. More noble. He's more noble. <laughs> uh, or at least he's the most respected man in the room. And it kind of goes down like this, and I want to quote it. Cassius is going to say... "'Tis better that the enemy seek us, so shall he waste his means, weary his soldiers, doing himself offense, while we, lying still, are full of rest, defense, and nimbleness.'" So basically Cassius' position is we should stay here at Sardis and force Anthony and Octavius to come to us. That way we'll be rested. Remember, these guys walk everywhere and it's expensive to move, so make them do it. Brutus, of course, can't listen to anyone else's ideas, and he's going to contradict with this alternate plan. He's going to say, let's cut him off at Philippi. Of course, he makes a valid point. He's going to say the people between here and Philippi, well, he's going to say this, the people twist Philippi and this ground do stands, but in a forced affection. They have grudged his contributions. The enemy marching along by them shall make a fuller number up. So, meaning... If we stay here any longer, you know, cause, because they are plundering these people's resources, they're living in their homes, they're eating their food, and the longer they stay, the more the people there are going to hate them. And when they uh, get there, they're going to have to fight not just Anthony's army, but all the local people, too. So we need to get out of here as soon as possible. So let's go to where Anthony and Octavius are, and we'll attack them first. What do you think of this, Gary? Of course, we know what happens in history, but had these arguments been put towards you, do they seem balanced?
1: Well, uh, historically, there are several considerations. Um, We know that it's about 426 miles from Sardis, where Brutus and Cassius are, to Philippi. And of course, in real life, it doesn't happen in one day like it appears to happen in a play. That's a lot of effort, and there's a lot of drama that happens that Shakespeare doesn't include. Shakespeare is really just making the point that, once again, Brutus, as always, is wrong. And perhaps that's something to think about in terms of what he's trying to say about life through the character of Brutus. But I'll let you speculate about that. As far as the battle goes, we can let that play out, and we'll talk about that in a minute, because we're about to finally get to battle time.
0: Well, the issue is settled. Regardless, they have agreed to leave first thing in the morning, and we are ready to close Act 4, but not without one of the more famous things that Shakespeare loves to include in his plays, a ghost will show up. How
1: often does he put a ghost in a play?
0: Uh, As often as possible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You can never have too few ghosts? No. Okay.
0: Uh,
1: I'm not sure... Uh, there's anything that can spice up a scene more than a ghost. But you know what else is great fun? And this is a bit of fun for music lovers. Um, Shakespeare's portrayal of the uh, ancient version of Spotify. Oh, yes. Uh, After everyone leaves the tent, Brutus tries to catch some sleep, but he can't. And he does what a lot of people would do. He turns on his music. And by that, we mean he brings in his servant Lucius in the room and makes him sing until he falls asleep. Except instead of Brutus falling asleep, Lucius the singer falls asleep. And when he does...
0: In comes the ghost of Caesar. And what he says might... Well, it would have made me reconsider my whole battle plan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Uh, He flickers the lights a little bit and says, I'll see you in Philippi.
0: To which Brutus responds... Talk about stoicism. He's going to respond and he says, In Philippi? All right. See ya. Quite strange.
1: Yes, you'd think he'd wake up Cassius and say, change of plans, but no, he does the opposite. He says to his servant, bid him set on his powers betimes before and we will be followed. Translated, it means, go tell Cassius to head out in the morning before me.
0: I know, it's like, I guess that's the stoicism kicking in, but either way, with that line, he's gonna close out act four and then we get to open up Act five.
1: But before we do, I want to add one more fun fact about this particular ghost, because you can never have too many ghost fun facts. (laughs) Um, And I do know Shakespeare is famous for making up ghosts. But in this case, he did not actually have to make up a ghost for the scene because our historian, Plutarch, that we've relied on, actually reports that Caesar's ghost did appear to Brutus. Now, I'm not really sure how Plutarch found that out firsthand, but it's still kind of a fun fact.
0: And it's in the record.
1: Yeah, and we'll take it.
0: (laughs) Well, Act 5 is going to open up with the two armies poised for battle on the plains of Philippi, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and ready for war. We're going to open up the scene, changing the point of view, because it's been from Brutus' perspective Uh, And we've enjoyed Brutus' perspective pretty much for the entirety of the play, but we're going to go back to Octavius and Anthony. They are kind of excited. Brutus has made the 400, not 200, 426-mile trek toward them. I would be excited about that, too. We also see the hint that um, Octavius just will not submit to Anthony. So their relationship, although it's an alliance, it's not really a friendship Anthony's going to say, I'll take the right, and you take the left. And Octavia says, I'll take the right, you take the left. It kind of sounds like stuff I did in elementary school (laughs) on the playground. Anyway, maybe one side was actually better. Who knows? It seems petty, uh, but Shakespeare includes it. Either way, they're excited, they're ready for war, and we hear the beating of the drums.
1: And if you look at what happened historically, they should be... um, Where they were originally, Brutus and Cassius had by far the stronger position. They were on the hills, or what we'd call the high ground. Antony and Octavius were in the marshes. The play opens up with Octavius saying, Antony, our hopes are answered. You said the enemies would not come down, but keep the hills and upper regions. It proved not so. There really is no reason that Brutus and Cassius should have lost this battle. They could have stayed in the hills and the high ground, which is always desirable in battle. They could wait for Anthony Octavius to charge the hills, something that would be truly a disadvantage, but instead they descend down into the marshes. So much of what they did seems stupid and unexplainable. Octavius was sick and had to be carried to Philippi. Something they else they didn't take advantage of. The whole thing is a wreck. And this seems to be something we see in the parlay between the characters.
0: Oh, yes. We have to love the parlay. <laughs>
1: parlay, parlay, parlay. Parlay,
0: parlay, parlay. Uh, I assert that, obviously, with Johnny Depp and the Pirates of the Caribbean. And in case you haven't seen that movie, a parlay seems to be like a ditch effort uh, or some sort of code for... Uh, for leaders before they have a fight. I guess you give one party an opportunity to surrender. And if you go into battle and you've got like 10,000 guys and you lock up and the other guy has 100,000 guys staring at you, you may realize, oh, I didn't do this properly or <laughs> this isn't a good idea. You may take this option. But here, it's a little Johnny Depp-like because they just name call.
1: Yeah. Well, and this parlay doesn't seem much more productive than the Johnny Depp parlays in Pirates of the Caribbean. Curse of the Black Pearl, where they just say parlay, parlay, parlay over and over again. Um, here they argue a little, and that's about it.
0: True, and the main takeaway, at least for me, is that Cassius is going to acknowledge to me just a little bit that Brutus is a bit of a knucklehead. Cassius will make fun of Octavius and Anthony, he's going to say, you wouldn't be alive to fight, Anthony, if I'd had my way, then he's going to call him names, you're a peevish schoolboy, and that's, he's talking about Octavius, worthless of such honor, joined with a masker and reveler, another reference to Anthony's reputation as a partier and an unserious human being. Um, We also see that Brutus finds himself complimenting Caesar again, and he's going to say that Octavius isn't the noblest of that family or strain you're not as good as your uncle so these are the kind of things that they're saying back and forth to each other right before they get ready to fight
1: wow i think it's hard to top peevish schoolboy. boy <laughs> I a shakespearean insult anyway uh, so cassius is going to bring up the point that it's his birthday and he doesn't seem to think that's a good thing he makes a disclaimer that he's not a superstitious kind of guy, but the ravens and the crows that followed him to the battle location seem to freak him out.
0: I think they really do. Uh, you know, he leaves the parlay and he goes back and he seems a little, I don't know, depressed. Uh, but I would be too if I'm walking to battle and I have to beat back the ravens and crows as if. They know something that I don't, and they're waiting for my flesh. You're always
1: a harbinger.
0: Yes, and he calls them a canopy most fatal, and I would suggest that that's not wrong. Uh, maybe it's the fact that he really knows that this is a stupid battle plan, and he's thinking about what's going to happen. But he brings up to Brutus this idea of noble suicide. In fact, he outright says, what are you going to do if we lose uh, he seems to think about the idea of what he would do when they captured soldiers in and, and days gone by. You would march him into Rome as slaves, and he's not going into Rome. And he's going to say, I'm going to kill myself, Brutus. Uh, what do you think? What are you going to do? And Brutus, of course, being the noble man that he is, says, I do find it cowardly and vile.
1: Hmm. To which Cassius will say, well, are you going to allow yourself to become a slave, be marched into Rome like uh, we do all the other people we capture? Brutus won't consider it, and they part ways. And that turns out to be the last time those guys ever talk again. Cassius is definitely pessimistic about this plan.
0: And what happens next, uh, to me, is a bit hard to follow, and it happens somewhat quickly. They're going to line up to do battle. And for the modern person, of course, I kind of think of it as like a football line. You know, I line up and you line up. So Brutus is going to line up against Octavius on one side, Cassius is going to line up against Anthony on the other. And it appears that they're supposed to attack all at the same time. You know, you give the sign, and then they're supposed to charge. And they go at the same time because the line doesn't break. And, you know, the enemy can't sneak through. However, Brutus apparently sees that Octavius's wing is weak. And he's going to attack early. That would be, like, if you think about a football, half the line going forward. Well, what does that obviously do? It's going to leave a hole. And in this case, it's going to leave Cassius. exposed. And of course, Cassius is immediately defeated. Now, this is bad, but it's not going to end up being fatal because Brutus was right about one thing. Octavius was weak and he's able to take him out and Octavius lost. So Cassius lost, Octavius lost. So in the end, day one, it should have been a draw.
1: Well, and interestingly enough, uh, there are examples of this very same flaw uh, in Going on in battles in the Revolutionary War and in the Civil War, oh, really, where generals miscommunicate and causing huge disasters. Do they
0: miscommunicate, like or they do like Brutus and like see an advantage and want to take a you know take a shot and don't calculate? Well, the they
1: do that, or sometimes it's what's called the fog of war. Uh, it's very difficult to make gr- oh, proper that's probably decisions. What it is. You're like and, in the
0: mode of the energy, and there you go. Well,
1: it's also you you the battlefield is so vast, you have no idea what's going on. In all the parts, and so you decide to act in your part of the battle, and it could be heroic or it could be disastrous.
0: Well, in that sense, my football analogy falls flat because you, <laughs> you know you're, it's not you're talking about 20 something guys, you're talking about 20,000 something well, guys.
1: You are, we're not holding you as the historian <laughs> in this group, so it's okay if you want to use your football analogy,
0: it makes it visual for me.
1: Well, good. Uh, so, uh, so. Cassius, though, really doesn't want to be taken back to Rome. So when he sees he's lost, he's going to have his slave kill him with his own sword. And interestingly enough, he says to the slave, Now be a freeman, and with this good sword that ran through Caesar's bowels, they probably didn't clean the blade off after that, search this bosom, stand not to answer. Here, take though the hilts, and when my face is covered, as tis now guide thou the sword caesar thou art revenged even with the sword that killed thee basically um, giving caesar credit for his death this is a long way from when he said that caesar was a weak guy and not stronger than them
0: it is quite impressive if you kill someone from the grave but uh it's amazing in real life it's been more than two and a half years since they murdered caesar And yet, we see as Shakespeare is um, describing the action that that murder is defining everything. This is affirmed again when Brutus sees Cassius' body and he's going to say, "'O Julius, thou art mighty yet. Thy spirit walks abroad and turns our swords in our own proper entrails.' And in some sense, that seems to really be true. Why are these guys killing themselves? Titanius, right after um, Cassius kills himself, which is, he's been nothing. He's a general. He's not really a main character, but he's a warrior, and he sees Cassius dead on the ground, and he kills himself too. So it's almost as if Caesar is, in his spirit, uh, inhabiting in every place at all times.
1: He seems to be ticking them off one at a time. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Well, historically speaking, Cassius isn't all that amazing of a warrior. Uh, Shakespeare, understandably, tries to wrap up this entire war in just one battle, but it actually is a complicated uh, bit of warfare. Brutus's army actually did quite well, even with Cassius stupidly killing himself for no reason. This battle is going to go on for 20 days, which is very long in, in terms of battles. And instead of regrouping, Brutus forces his troops ahead again to the point to where they kind of mutiny and they stop marching. Uh, this is when Brutus has to admit defeat and he does what Shakespeare has him do in the play. He asks his servant, Strato, to hold a sword and he runs into it. I
0: know that's got to be like one of the worst ways to go. I can't even imagine. And of course they say that's what happened. And that leaves really nothing left, uh, in the play, but this final and strange eulogy of Anthony. And I do, uh, want to read the eulogy in full. So they have a little bit of to do after, uh, Brutus is dead and but a guy who pretends to be Brutus shows up and Anthony is going to find out that he has killed himself and he's going to say this this was the noblest Roman of them all all the conspirators same only he did that they did in envy of great Caesar he only in the general honest thought and common good to all made one of them his life was gentle and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. I find this eulogy very strange, and it's actually, in a large part, not true at all. It's very obvious from the get-go that Brutus was jealous of Caesar. Look at how Cassius coaxed him into it. He says he's not as good good as you or you're just as good as him yet Anthony is also right when he says the elements so mixed in him and we see here what I find the most fascinating observation of Shakespeare in the entire play Brutus is not just one thing it's a very humanizing thing and a very complicated thing yes he's jealous yes he didn't like the idea that Caesar was getting all this glory but he's also extremely worried about Rome. So there's two things going on. He's not just one thing. And this seems to be what Shakespeare is focusing on. And in some ways, that makes this particular retelling telling of the history a little bit unique. The play is titled Julius Caesar. It's not titled Brutus. So who's the protagonist? Who's driving the action? Well, obviously, we've seen this in the battle scene. Caesar drives a lot of the action. But in some sense, Brutus also is driving the action because clearly he's the one who leads the conspiracy. He definitely has the most lines. He's the one that murders Caesar. He's the focus of almost all the acts. But in the end, one of his final lines is to give credit to Caesar for driving this play. So what are we to make of all this?
1: Well, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, Brutus is so many things. He's a respected political figure. He loves and respects his wife. He does seem to have a true love of his country. Uh, He wants to reject corruption even. He's even kind to his servants and slaves, yet he's also egotistical to the point of blindness, Treacherous, and he's willing to throw over his own values to get what he wants, but I'd like to point out he's continuously blind to his worst faults.
0: Yes, and that ends up being what destroys him. Uh, I kind of agree with all this, and if this play has any modern application, I feel like it has to be in analyzing the character of Brutus, not in this simple version of Caesar that's kind of been caric- caricatured here. Everyone was afraid of Caesar. What's he going to do? What he could have done? What he might do? And of course, the man, as he's portrayed in this play, as in the man Caesar, he is very egotistical, and he has a huge mouth on him. He's so ridiculous and absurd, and he says things like, I am constant as the northern star of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament. Mm,
1: that's a nice self-compliment.
0: Well, and he says things like, danger's afraid of me, me <laughs> danger to lions. I mean, it just doesn't get more arrogant than that. He makes him as pompous and as foolish as you can possibly imagine. But yet, Brutus's flaw clearly is greater Because he is willing to compromise the rule of law, his own moral convictions. He's willing to be blind to everything that he formerly believed in because of jealousy. And this is what makes him a classic tragic hero. Because in the tragic heroes, I mean all of them... You have a genuinely good guy in the Greek versions, you know, this noble birth or something along those lines. But then they have hubris or some other really obvious character flaw that's related to their ego. And this makes them suffer some sort of cataclysmic, unrecoverable disaster, which is exactly what we see in Brutus.
1: And of course, that is the genius of Shakespeare, making these people complicated as characters. And um, I think Shakespeare wanted the play to have a modern application for his day. Uh, In England in 1599, they were getting ready to go through a political transition. Elizabeth was old by medieval standards, you know, 66. That's, (laughs) That's pushing the limit. Her reign was coming to an end. She didn't have any children. Um, England seemed to be heading towards its own civil war, which it would have in about 40 years after this time period. Uh, And this, of course, was on everyone's mind at the time. What would become of our way of life? Who will try to overthrow the government? How many years of warfare will this take? Uh, And it's in that sense that they would see parallels in the story. So what does this portrayal of Brutus mean?
0: Well, you could simplify it to say, oh, he's fallen just like all of us. He can't live up to his ideals that uh, he tried to live up to. He can't be the stoic. He can't be the nobleman. And of course, you know, if you're a good person, then obviously you can't live up to your own ideals. That's the whole idea about being a good person. You have ideals, but you're also human. But I don't know that that's what's worth talking about for several hundred years I think another big idea in this text is this idea of what it takes to preserve a fair and healthy. And in their case, it wasn't a democracy in the sense that we think of democracy, but it's in their... It was
1: a republic.
0: It was a republic. And in England, you know, they also had a monarch, but it wasn't like the the kind of heavy-handed monarchs. People were ha- given a voice.
1: They had constitutional monarchy they've been developing for hundreds of years.
0: So... Uh, In their own way, this is a question that we must answer kind of in our own way, even though our style of government is quite different. We do have a system. And in Brutus's case, he really just believed he was better or at least just as good as Caesar. He was afraid of what Caesar might do. So he did something against his state of values and he did something Against the constructs of the social agreement that they had all agreed to. So to put it simply, he decides to cheat. Uh, He doesn't want to do it the honest way, put him out of office the honest way, whatever it would have taken the hard way. So he murders a man. And in the process, he's going to dismantle the government violating the norms they had all agreed and had lived by for several hundred years and had constructed for the purpose of protecting themselves and their way of life. And he really believed, I truly believe, and in this sense he is noble. He thought, I'm just going to cheat once because this is a worthy cause of cheating. And afterwards, we're not going to have to cheat again and everything's just going to go back to normal. But is that I mean, is that idealism, you know, ludicrous, inflated, ego, whatever? It didn't happen.
1: No, and it's a complete violation of the concept of the social contract. The idea that people band together and form a government so the government can serve them. And you're having now Brutus, who's thinking that his understanding of government so vastly superior to everyone else's that it entitles him to the right to co opt and, and overthrow. Uh, And, you know, history uh, doesn't look kindly on a lot of things like this. It reminds me of an interesting scene we saw on a Netflix show called The Crown. Uh, In that show, Winston Churchill has been elected to be prime minister of England. The other men in government think he's too old, not qualified. He doesn't take the job seriously. And some of them seem to think he's crazy and they want to overthrow his government, which in a parliamentary form is not as dramatic sounding, is it? as it may sound. Anyway, and overthrow the will of the people in what appears to be some sort of parliamentary coup. Uh, In one very interesting scene, one man from the government approaches King George and basically asks him to get involved in getting rid of Churchill. King George says, basically, as a friend, I could get involved, but as king, I will respect the law and our institutions as they are. So he refuses. Uh, This is the anti-Brutus approach. And although we don't know for sure, but it is possible England owes a great debt of gratitude for their stability to the wisdom of not just King George, but also to his daughter, Elizabeth, if we're giving the royalty a shout out there. Uh, There was no coup on uh, leadership of Churchill, and England has been a stable country for the last 70 years. So they chose against a preemptive strike and dismantling of their long-held institutions for the sake of a political advantage in the moment.
0: Well, looking back at... Rome. Brutus could have benefited from King George's wisdom. Brutus is dead. Cassius is dead. But perhaps more importantly, the Roman Republic, it's dead. It will never return. And Shakespeare reminds us of this, of this by giving Octavius the last words. And there's your what we call dramatic irony, because we know what the people in the story don't know,
1: mm-hmm. and that's
0: he wins. Octavius ends the play saying, According to his virtue, let us use him with all respect and rites of burial, Within my tent his bones tonight shall lie. So you see him kind of co-opting authority even subtly. But anyway, most like a soldier, ordered honorably, so call the field to rest and let's away to part the glories of this happy day. And he will carry the day, but in real life, not before literal years of civil war. And basically, Rome was lawless for quite some time. He will win. He'll ultimately rule Rome until he dies himself in AD fourteen at the ripe old age of seventy five. Hmm. Any final thoughts, Gary? What do you think?
1: Oh, so many. <laughs> in you know, in some ways, politics and government have not changed since Shakespeare's days or even Roman days. Uh, Shakespeare has tapped into the timelessness of political behavior. Uh, And and with that, we too shall depart, only to pick up next week another political book and another coup, Animal Farm. We'll let the journalist George Orwell give us his thoughts uh, on this hot topic of conspiracy, tyranny, and freedom as he sees it through the lens of post-World War II era and its aftermath.
0: Well, I guess on that note, we will say... I do. Farewell. Arrivederci, Roma.
1: And <laughs> <laughs> bye to the ghost of Caesar. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks for being with us as we've gone through the classic work of Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Uh, we want to invite you to always be part of our network of friends. You can follow us on uh, How to Love Lit Podcast and our Facebook page. You can find us on Instagram under How to Love Lit Podcast. As we always tell you, we have the howtolovelitpodcast.com website with learning materials for teachers to use in the classroom and all kinds of other interesting information. And most importantly, get your friends to come along. Um, if you enjoy a good book, we bet your friends would enjoy a good book too.
0: Peace out.